God says something and we believe it. That's faith. Yeah? God says something and we believe it. That's faith. That's all it is. It's, I think what Jesus is trying to say here is try not to kind of muster up what is yourself. You know, I'm going to really believe. It's not about that. It's simply, that's all you need. A mustard seed. Nothing more. Just a mustard seed. That's all you want. Because faith is just believing what God has said. Mark 11. Mark 11 says, um, I tell you, I, again, I tell you, I tell you the truth, I tell you, if, if anyone by prayer asks me for anything, I'm going to read it because I wrote it down. I tell you, Mark 11 verse 24, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it and it will be yours. That's surely one of the most important scriptures in the New Testament. The trouble is, we tend to pass over it. We put conditions on it. We think, oh, uh, it can't be God's will, or uh, it's too selfish a request, so I, I can't have that. But does Jesus put conditions on that verse? There aren't any. I'll read it again. I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. I think when we start doing that, we're going to see amazing things. <laughs> okay, that's my bit. <laughs> Next. <laughs> After Des died, I was in, my garden was in a mess. I, I went around to the garden, it was absolutely terrible, um, because neither was, Des hadn't been able to do it and I hadn't been able to see. And my house was in a terrible muddle. And I asked the Lord um, for somebody to help me in the house. And then the person came up to me and happened to say, didn't know what I prayed, and said, I know somebody who could help you in the house. And and I've had a girl for about 18 months, yeah, 18 months, I don't know, not sure, um, now, who's helped me tremendously, and that was a wonderful answer to prayer. Really, I've praised God for a lot of things since Des died. You know, I've praised him for, for answering prayer. And then I, uh, I asked for a gardener, because I badly needed a gardener, I couldn't, it was beyond me. And uh, I went to one of my meetings, and one of the people there said, or she might have rung me up, I'm not sure, but anyway, she was a person at the meeting, and she said, oh, she said, I've got a one, she said, I've got a wonderful gardener, she said, he lives just close to me, and she said, he's looking for work, she said, you don't want a gardener, do you? And I said, wow, yes. So anyway, um, so I'd got my gardener, and uh, I'd got my person in the house, I'd got my gardener, and I was praising God. I said, Lord, I need a, I need a handyman. Uh, yeah, it was at the meeting, and <clears throat> and one day I had to ring this person up, or she rang me, I can't remember what she said about it. And she said, he isn't just a gardener, she's his handyman. I said, oh, is he? Wow. So 
the Lord had answered the whole prayer of everything I needed. And, you know, it's marvelous. I just, I've just praised God for all his goodness and all his wonderful keeping power in everything since Des went because he's been a wonderful God and I've really found the richness of him. And what is, you know, is, you know, the strength and the richness of him. That's all I wanted to say. I hope you heard it. <laughs> Up, Josie, I'm sure that you're experiencing that special blessing. Um, it's interesting, actually. It's nice, but um, in some ways, I don't really. I, I was asked to prepare this a while ago, but in some ways, I don't really need to say this because it's been happening this morning anyhow. I just want to read a scripture to you and um, make a few comments on it. And it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 33. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church. Let them speak to themselves and to God. Two or three prophets may speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you may all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And 1 Corinthians really is Paul's letter to a church that had gone astray in lots of different ways. And there were divisions. They were, some people were saying that um, they followed Apollos, some said they were uh, following Cephas, some Paul. And um, Paul had to say, no, you're... You're all, we're just servants. And they had, they had other problems with immorality. Some were suing one another. They had the Lord's Supper. And when they had the Lord's Supper, it wasn't like we have here. It would have been a proper meal. And they would have shared the Lord's Supper within it. And they were going in, some of them early, eating and getting drunk before the poor people could arrive. And they weren't doing the Lord's Supper in a way that was honouring to the Lord. But then we have these chapters, verse, and chapters... Um, 12, 13, and 14, which really are all about the spiritual gifts. And obviously I haven't got the time to even begin to go through everything here. And we forget sometimes that chapter 13 is sandwiched between two chapters about spiritual gifts and what Paul is saying. These people, they thought that they were super spiritual and they thought that the gifts of the Spirit were a mark of their superiority. And what Paul was saying, unless they're used in the spirit of love, then they're of no use. Unless they're used to, to build up the body of Christ, they're of no use. And um, that's his basis for all of the rest that he says in, um, in Corinthians. And I find it interesting that in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, he uses the word edify or, or edification or to build up or be, um, to build up um, six times, five times in, in connection with the church. And often when we think about coming together as a service, we think firstly about worshipping God when we come in our meeting. And that is right, we do come to worship God, but Paul saw 
one of the main purposes of us gathering together is to build one another up. That we come together to instruct, to encourage, for God to be able to move among us so that he might be glorified in our lives. And that is, a, is, is such a big part of Paul's whole thinking when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit and our gatherings together. And interestingly, of course, in the early church, most congregations would have been quite small, like this, mostly met in, in homes. They didn't have a platform, people didn't stand up at the front, but they just met in homes, and, and, and these gifts would have been moving among them. And we have to remember as well, when Paul wrote this, he was writing to, to, um, to correct things that were wrong. Um, so sometimes we've taken these things and, and, and it actually makes us fearful of doing things, like the, the uh, thing about um, speaking in tongues and needing to be an interpreter. Well, how do you know there's an interpreter unless someone speaks in a tongue? So we, we, we don't allow it because it might, might not work and we're worried if we, we do. But then Paul does also say we can pray for an interpretation. So in verse 26, he tells us, um, when you come together, each has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that church may be built up. So every one of us is a, is a priest. And the um, Reformation, they, they rediscover the whole thing of the priest of all believers but they never really incorporated it into um, to when corporate worship. And they missed out something. And it's something that God has over the last, especially over the 20th century and into this century, has been reaffirming is the, is the priesthood of all believers and that we all come as priests. We all come to bring something to God. We all come to bring something to one another to build one another up. But to have that type of meeting does, does mean a change in attitude. It means us thinking, what can I bring? What can I bring that will build up my brothers and sisters this morning? Not just what can I get, although sometimes we come just needing, and that's okay. But we should come also thinking, what's the Lord been doing in my life that might be significant to someone else? And I think most people are willing to do this. Some are frightened of speaking in public, and I, for one, was one who was terrified speaking in public and I expect some of you who knew me from the 90s when I stood up here I used to stand up here trembling um, but but God will take what little thing you've got and he will cause it to grow like that mustard seed he will take that and he will cause it to grow and we need to see that it's not for, for people who are just standing up the front the gifts of the spirit aren't for super saints they're for just ordinary Christians who love the Lord each one of us is a saint and precious in his eyes. Each one of us stands holy before him and each one of us may be used by him. So sometimes when we come, we need to be prepared. We need to be listening to what the Lord has been saying throughout the week, maybe through the scriptures. In the end, the scriptures is the main way that God speaks to us. Though I often find it's not when I'm reading the scriptures, it's Later on, when I'm doing something and a scripture comes into my mind that God speaks, he doesn't always speak to me when I'm reading it. But if we put the scriptures in, we allow God to bring that out. So it's not about a rule, oh, I must read the scriptures. It's about making ourselves more usable to God and more open to what he's doing. So we might be thinking, 
we, need, we should ask ourselves when, when, when we're, we're reading the scriptures, when we're listening to God, whatever, through the week, is that relevant just to me or is that relevant to the body? And we should have an attitude when we come together of listening to what the Spirit is saying in the meeting. If you feel like starting a song, it's not just about singing your favourite song. It's about listening to see what God is saying. Does that fit in with what, what's been said? Now, sometimes you might still feel that it's the right thing to give. But it's about being sensitive to what he's doing among us. And listening. And this comes as we exercise, as we, as we, as we um, exercise the gifts, we learn to hear better. Sometimes we'll make big mistakes, and that's okay, because we're learning. But as we start to listen to the Lord, we'll find that God is starting to, to do things more and more among us. So you might think, well, how do I know? How do I know whether this is from God? How does he speak to me? And well, I can only give subjective how he speaks to me, and I think he, he deals with each one of us individually. And for me, sometimes it will just be a word that God's given. Sometimes it will be a sentence, and then I'll start to speak it and find that there's far more. Sometimes it's a picture. Sometimes it's a sense that I, I must say this, and the more I push it down, the more I must say this comes. And you know that you must say it. It might not even be for the meeting, it might be for someone individual afterwards that you need to, to, to share it with. But we need to be sensitive to what he's saying. We need to ask, does this line up with the scriptures? And you might not know many scriptures, but does it line up with what you know? Does it, will it build up the body of Christ, which is Paul's main criteria for using the gifts of the Spirit? Is it about, am I doing this for love? Will it build up the body of Christ? And of course, will it glorify Jesus? And if we have those criteria right, then we're safe. We're safe to speak out and for the others to discern what's of the Lord and what's not. For me, the first time I gave a prophecy was simple. And I was about um, 18, 19 years old. And I'd just been baptised in the Holy Spirit and spoken in tongues. And I suddenly found that that God was giving me prophecy. And the first prophecy I, I had was, um, the Lord says, I love you. And it was simple. I sat there and sat there until the pressure built and I said it. And it was for someone there who just needed to hear that. It was a very, very simple prophecy. But they needed to hear it. And God will use you in small ways. He will take the mustard seed and he will cause it to grow. And you will find yourself growing more and more. Well, I look forward to... I look forward to the day when we come together and the worship leader is almost superfluous to, to requirements. We don't really need them. They start it up, but then someone will read a scripture, another will give a testimony, another will give a word of knowledge, another a tongue, another interpretation, another a prophecy. Someone else will start a song. And the person who will be conducting it all will be the Holy Spirit as we listen to what he's saying. And as the body starts to grow like that, then Jesus is revealed because each one of us reveals Jesus in a very unique way. And I just want to bring us this last thing, and I mentioned this before. It's like the eagle, and he looks for the thermals. And when he finds the thermals, he opens his wings, and he rises up and up and up. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to be listening to what the Spirit is saying. And we need to open up our wings 
and allow him to carry us. Someone once said that we as Christians are more, have more faith that Satan can deceive us than we have that God can guide us. And I think this is the case sometimes. We worry so much about getting it wrong that we never allow God to use us. And yet Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And he is more than able to keep us and to use us for the building up of his body. Amen. If you want to turn to where I am this morning, it's uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. Good morning to you. It's nice to have it visible, not hidden, isn't it? I have a feeling at the Last Supper, Jesus didn't hide it. We do it for hygiene's sake, I guess. But it's also a visual aid, isn't it? As well as a... Well, it's the best visual aid of all. Because the best visual aids appeal to all the senses. And this does, doesn't it? You can look at it. If you're close enough, you can smell it. You will taste it and touch it and take it into yourselves and we will hear about it. So Ephesians chapter 2. Before we started this morning I just uh, came here, dropped my bag off and then I walked into the grounds because it's lovely and warm out there and we should be having our service out there not in here because it's nice and warm out there isn't it? But just walking around the graveyard is quite a thought-provoking Exercise. Because this controls that, doesn't it? They aren't just graves of people who wanted a space to be buried. There's something about this that connects with that. Making sense of things. I looked at some of the gravestones with thoughtful words written on, probably from the people who buried the person, not necessarily a choice of the person involved themselves, but expressive of some kind of love, um, sense of bereavement, and hope. And Christ is our hope. We're going to look at a little passage here, which first of all tells us of what we were by nature, and then what we are by grace. And it's written to Christians. And you might say, well, why is Paul telling them what they used to be if life has changed? If we forget what we used to be, we will be ungrateful for what we are. We live in an ungrateful society, a thankless society. By and large, all generalizations are wrong, and that one is too. But you know the point. Both times God gives Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, he begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt. 
out of the slave out of the land of slavery. He reminds them what they were before he got them. It's a good thing to remember where we were. So that's what we're going to read first of all. And I'm reading from Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, writes Paul, we, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. I'm going to stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. The gospel doesn't stop there. But I'm going to pause there to let us reflect on that. In his letter, Paul follows an interesting order. It's a six-chapter book and divided into two, chapters 1 to 3 and 4 to 6. And in chapters 1 to 3, he tells us what God has done for us. And in the last three chapters, he tells us how we should live in light of that. And that is always the order you should think about Christian living. What has God done for us? How then should we live? An ancient or an old Chinese saint called Watchman Nee wrote a very small pamphlet called Sit, Walk, Stand. His exposition of the theme of Ephesians. And he picks up the word sit from the passage we're about to read in a moment, where we sit in the heavenlies. Oftentimes we're struggling so hard to do something for God. We feel that by we're going through certain rituals, certain exercises, that somehow we gain credit with God. I've just told you what you once were. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And dead people, self-evidently, can do nothing about themselves or about any other matter. He says transgressions and sins covers everything. Transgressions are what you do wrong. Do not walk on the grass, you walk on the grass. But sins is also that, well I said capacity, it's an incapacity to meet God's standard. However hard we try, we can never reach his standard. So it's sins of commission and omission. Adam was warned that if he committed a sin of commission, don't eat fruit from that tree, if he committed that sin, he would die. Of course, clearly he didn't. He and Eve had children of their own, and their children grew up to have children of their own, so Adam and Eve continued to live and see their children and their grandchildren. So it wasn't physical death that they were talking about, it was spiritual death. Though they were upright, standing, speaking, doing all the sort of things that other people were doing, they were dead. So the mere fact that people are living a human life does not negate this truth. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Our sins, our spirits were not alive. Jesus taught that he came to give us life and give it to the full. We would have life in all its fullness. This is the spiritual connection made alive by the Spirit. If Jesus is alive, 
then to be separated from him is to be separated from life, which is what we call death. So our bodies may be alive, we may even be in good physical shape. We may have tremendous capacities of intellect. We may have sparkling personalities. But if our spirits are dead, then we are not alive in a biblical sense. We'll still be dead in our transgressions and sins if we've not been saved by God. That's where we used to be, my friends. Dead. We were slaves, Paul goes on to say, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We are slaves. And you only have to look at some people's lives, obviously, who are slaves to addictions. Now, we're not all as evidently gripped by that slavery. But biblically, if we are not Christians, we are slaves to sin. We follow the ways of this world. We gratify the cravings of our sinful nature. We follow the ways of the rule of the kingdom of the air. The terms we use these days are the world, the flesh and the devil. And Paul lists them here. When he says about the world, you follow the ways of this world, he's referring to a world that's organised against God. Organises itself as if God did not exist, as if God is irrelevant. That's how the world constructs its culture. And the values of such a non-Christian society determine the culture of that society. So it's expressed in such actions as injustice, oppression, tyranny, hunger, discrimination, and we could go on, all of which are dehumanising. For such a culture celebrates materialism, not God, rejects God, and refuses to accept moral absolutes of right and wrong. Doesn't that describe the society we live in today? And we followed the ways of that world. One thing that happens when we become Christians is we have to have our brains, as it were, rewired. We have to get those sort of things out of our mind so we can allow God's word in. We gratified the cravings of our sinful nature, he says in verse 3, following its desires and thoughts. There's nothing wrong with bodily desires, food, sleep, sex. But if food becomes gluttony, and if sleep becomes laziness, and if sex becomes lust, then they are sinful behaviours. And they describe once again our society, of which we are a part. Not only the physical, of course, but it's the mental too. Wrongful pride. You can be proud in the right way, proud of your son's or your granddaughter's achievements, but there's also selfish pride, selfish ambition, vain conceit, calling evil good and good evil, malicious talk. They're all expressions of this sinful nature that we followed before. That when someone wrongs us, we're going to get them back. This is where we once were, my friends. Slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The devil lies behind all slavery. Adam and Eve fell for his lie that by committing this sin, they would experience freedom. Quite the opposite happened, in fact. They became enslaved to him. 
and the New Testament affirms that there is a personal devil with his own minions who holds the world in slavery through their fear of death. So we were dead and unable to change ourselves, obviously. We were slaves, and no slave, by definition, can free himself. She is completely bound by the one she is enslaved to. But Paul goes on. He says we were, like the rest, by nature, objects of wrath. God's wrath is an uncomfortable thought. We love to talk about the love of God, but less comfortable with his wrath. Yet the Bible insists that God is wrathful. But please don't just think of it in terms of human wrath. Human wrath is often an expression of someone's angst, of someone's inability to control themselves, of their desire for revenge. God's wrath is never, ever like that. God's wrath is, and I'm quoting someone else here, is his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. God's wrath is always and only ever directed towards sin. Nowhere else. This is not God being vindictive, capricious. It means, therefore, it's entirely consistent with his love and mercy. It is not inconsistent with a God of love. So we must celebrate the fact that God is consistently, implacably opposed to evil and always reacts to evil in the same predictable and uncompromising way. We know where we stand with God. And Paul says where we once stood was as objects of his wrath, deserving his judgment. It is very easy to come to this meal because we do it so often and have done so regularly. And in a sense, do it automatically. I rather like going to churches where we do it differently. If you go to a different kind of church, the chances are the mechanics of actually sharing the communion will probably be different. I love going to churches where that happens because it triggers in me a desire to think about why do they do it this way? And what do I receive this particular way? Doing it the same way all the time can dull that impression. The Bible has a strong sense of solidarity of humankind. And Paul says here, we can't blame Adam for God's wrath against us since we were in him, he writes in 1 Corinthians, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. It wasn't that Adam sinned and therefore the rest of us reap the benefit of that. We were in Adam product of his body, if you go back enough generations. So in the same way that we were in him when he sinned, Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It wasn't just that Christ was crucified, I was crucified in him. His death was my death, and I live because of the Son of God who lives in me. So we're dead people who cannot give ourselves life, We are slaves who cannot give ourselves freedom and we are condemned people who cannot pardon ourselves. It is a desperate situation, my friends. And that's where we once were. I don't want to labour the point. But only when we know what we once were will we understand what God has done. 
what God has done. We were by nature objects of wrath, but God. But God, because of his great love for us, had mercy on us. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God made us alive with Christ. We were slaves to the world, the flesh and the devil, but God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. It all turns on that. That's why Watchman Nee said, sit, walk, stand. The first thing about being a Christian is you sit in the place where God has given you everything. It's not about what you've done. It's not about even what you think or what you can accomplish. It's everything about what God has done. This meal is all about what God has done, nothing about us. He didn't act to make us better. He acted to change us completely. He didn't intend to improve who we were. He intended to transform us into new people. Our powerlessness and hopelessness was overwhelmed by his mercy and grace. Resurrection out of death, creation out of nothing, is nothing less than what salvation is. So that's the hinge point. So what we are by grace. God has done something in us. Let me read you a little story about someone who appreciated what another person did for them. It changed the way his life was. A preacher was leaving Victoria Station in London. Sitting across from him in the little train compartment were two men in their late thirties. About ten minutes out of the station, one of the men had an epileptic seizure. His eyes rolled back and his body trembled. The man rolled off the seat onto the floor and shook uncontrollably. It was a shocking thing to see. His friend lifted the stricken man up and put him back onto the seat, took off his overcoat and put it around him as a blanket. He rolled up a newspaper and put it in his mouth, lest the man bite his tongue. Then with great compassion he lovingly blotted the beads of perspiration on the epileptic man's forehead. After a few minutes the seizure ended with the same abruptness with which it began, and the stricken man dropped into a deep sleep. It was then that his friend turned to the preacher and said, You'll have to forgive us. He doesn't have these seizures very often, but we never know when they're going to strike him. We were in Vietnam together, he continued. We were both wounded. I lost a leg. Pointed to his right leg, he said, This is an artificial leg. I've learned to walk on it very well. My friend here had half his chest blown away by a hand grenade. There was shrapnel all through his chest, and every time he moved he experienced great pain. The helicopter that was supposed to rescue us was blown out of the sky by an enemy rocket, and with that explosion we knew that all hope for rescue was gone. It was then that my friend somehow picked himself up. He screamed in pain with every move he made, but somehow he stood to his feet. Then he reached down and grabbed hold of my shirt and started pulling me through the jungle. I tried to tell him to give up on me. I pleaded with him to save himself if he could, and I kept telling him there was no way he was going to get us both out of the jungle. I'll never forget him saying, Jack, if you die in this jungle, I'm going to die here with you. I don't know how he did it, but step by step, scream by scream, he pulled me out of that mess. He saved my life. A year ago, I found out that he had this condition and that somebody had to be with him all the time. So I closed down my condo in New York, sold my car, and came over here to take care of him. 
That's our story. I hope you understand. My friend responded by saying, Don't apologise, I'm a preacher. Whenever I come upon a good story, I'm thrilled, and this is one of the best stories I've heard in a long, long time. His new friend on the other side of the compartment said, Hey, don't be impressed. You see, after what he did for me, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for him. Only when we know where we were will we ever get hold of what God has done for us in Christ. It's good to pause, and I'm going to pause at this moment and give you a few moments just to think. I don't want you to say anything aloud. If you have a prayer of thanksgiving, give it to God in your heart. Just endure this moment where you once were. Where you once were. Dead, enslaved, <clears throat> and under condemnation. God, <clears throat> because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared <clears throat> in advance for us to do. That's good, isn't it? The first few verses just leave you hanging in the abyss. It's full of darkness and hopelessness. But Paul says that's not the gospel. The gospel is that's true. You need the bad news first in order that the good news really is good news. And God, because of his love and mercy for us, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. God did that, not because of what you've done, but because of what he is, who he is. So Christians, every Sunday, often in many churches, Anglican churches, other churches, affirm the creed. They talk about the resurrection, ascension and exhortation of Christ, saying words something like, on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, God the Father. Every week many affirm that. Wonderful thing to do. Many of the songs we sing affirm the same truth. Well, the same thing has happened to you in Christ. Our resurrection Verse 5, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Our ascension, he raised us up in Christ, verse 6. Our exaltation and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, ascended and exalted to the right hand of the Father and that has happened to you. You are no longer dead in your transgressions, but alive in Christ. You've been raised to life. So Christians do not merely worship Christ, think he's a nice guy, 
sing lovely songs to him. We don't assent to certain truths. I believe God, well, the devils do as well. We don't really live by certain standards. What makes us distinctive is our union with Christ. One of Paul's favourite phrases is, in Christ. You are in Christ. And I love that phrase. We're praying, as we often seem to be these days, for pregnant mums that we know. Seems no sooner do they give birth to their children than more pregnant mums come onto the scene. Anyway, it's a very graphic description. In the old days, if you read in the Old Testament, there are some bitterly awful bits where you hear people talk about ripping open the pregnant women. The idea was to kill the next generation. But the only way they could do that was literally to go through the mother. There was no other way of reaching them. You are in Christ. The only way you are reachable is through him. Whoever is going to get you has got to get Christ first. Do you get the picture? You are safe in him. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, verse 3, chapter 1, in Christ. We've been seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. We share his resurrection, his ascension, his present kingly realm in the heavenly realms. We were dead, now we're alive. We were in captivity and now we are enthroned with him. And the reason God did it has got nothing to do with you. Everything to do with him. That may sound rather awful and rather diminishing of you who are made in the image of God. I say it deliberately because if it's got anything to do with you, if you're on a high, everything's working wonderful. But if you're on a low, you become nervous about whether God still would respond to you in the same way as when you're good. It's got nothing to do with you but everything to do with God. It's initiated not because of something in us, but because of something in God. One of the things Moses had to say to the people as they're going into the promised land is, remember this, he said, God didn't choose you because of anything to do with you. He chose you because he loved you. And why does he love you? Because he loves you. It's a circular argument. God loves you because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he's love. It's got nothing to do with you. Which gives us security at times when we don't know what's happening and we feel insecure. So we deserve from God only his wrath, his condemnation. What we've received from him is salvation. And salvation isn't just forgiveness of sins. Salvation is deliverance from death. It's freedom from slavery. It's rescue from God's wrath. It's a big thing. God's grace is his free and unmerited favour towards us. And faith, we've already mentioned that this morning, comes in many guises in the New Testament. But it's simply the humble trust with which we receive for ourselves what God has given us. It's a completely free gift of God's doing. It's not of our own doing. It's what he has done for us because we could not and did not achieve it for ourselves. It's not a reward for every, anything we've done, not acts of religious observance by reading your Bible, praying, coming to church. It's not a reward for that. Salvation is because God's free gift to you. It cannot be a source of our boasting except our boasting in Christ and what he's done. It's God's work. 
So because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The Gospels tell us that when Jesus in the Mount of Olives stared into the future, he knew what was coming. He cried out with all his soul that his Father would find another way. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And he prayed so earnestly that his sweat was like drops of blood. Now, many men and women through the centuries, Christians too, have died with smiles on their faces. And that's not an exaggeration. How is it then that Christ here, who always knew he not only would, but must die this way, how is it that he caves in at this moment? How is it that that happens? My friends, he's not looking at the cross He's looking deeper into the spiritual reality. He is going to experience everything that humankind was meant to experience. And he who had never owned sin, never known a moment of separation from his father, is staring at being treated as if he were the worst sinner in the world. And he was doing it for you and for me. We were dead in our transgressions. He will die that we might live. We were slaves. He would be treated as a rebel so that we would be called the children of God. He would die under the wrath of God and the mere prospect of it overwhelms him that he can barely get his words out on the Garden of Gethsemane and cries out to his father, is there another way? And his father is going to refuse him and turn his back on him because of us. He said, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So we do it knowing full well the huge cost for God himself, Father, Son and Spirit. But he did it willingly and gladly. No one forced him to it. He did it that we could be free that we could live lives that we had only ever before dreamt about, that will be free not only from our passing, but from sin's grip. So when you take this bread, eat it and remember that Christ died for you, and he is the bread of life. He gives you life. 
not because of who you are, but because of who he is. He wants you to taste the life he has known from eternity. Life in all its fullness. Not all the accoutrements that we think are important, but a taste of what is to come. So eat it, remembering that Christ died for you. And be grateful. And drink this cup, this cup of the new covenant, for the forgiveness of sins. We have sinned, we do sin, we will sin. If we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth isn't in us. But when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and forgives us our sin. And when he forgives us, he takes the cost of the sin on himself. Someone has to pay the price. And if we're not doing it, God is doing it. Every time we confess our sin and he forgives us, he takes the cost himself. And we know freedom. So we don't need to hold on to it anymore. We don't need to languish under it anymore. We are free people. So I'm going to ask you to do it differently this morning. And I hope that's not going to offend you, but in order just to trigger a moment in you. What I'm going to ask you to do, and I don't want you to do it in any particular order, don't come up in front row, second row, third row, just come up when you're ready. Come up and take a piece of bread and eat it and take a cup and drink it. You can take it back to your seat if you want. You can eat it here if you want to. Whatever you like. If you know someone here who'll find getting up and bring it out difficult, you may want to say, I'm going to go and get it for them. I'm going to want to minister the love and grace of God to them. Not because I have to, but because I want to. You may want to do that with someone here. You may want to come and take communion for yourself. I guess we're going to run out of cups, but we're not going to run out of bread. There's plenty of bread there. You may want to say, I want to take the bread to you and say, I know you've had a tough week last week. I know it's been difficult. I want, to, I want you to know that this is the bread of life. God has given you life this morning. Or you may know of someone, because they've told you already, they said, next week is going to be a difficult week for me. I don't know how I'm going to cope. You may want to take a piece of bread and say, I'll bring this to you. God is with you. Christ died for you. This is life. He will strengthen you in the coming week. So it may be a little bit disorganized, but it won't be. It may be a, bit, a little bit different from what we were usually coping for, but that's okay. And if you find yourself with more than one piece of bread, Enjoy it. One man told me once that he was once at a meeting where that invitation was given and he immediately thought of one other pastor, a group of pastors who had been on a weekend conference together who had shared his heart a little bit, very vulnerably. He immediately thought, I'm going to take that man a piece of bread. So when he'd taken communion himself, he went over to that man he found on his knees in tears. And the man opened his hands and his hands were full of bread. Father, we can't ever really grasp what you have done in Christ for us. It just overwhelms us, Father. But we know you did it out of love. No one made you. You wanted to. And we, the objects of your wrath, who were still sinners, receive your grace. It is 
extraordinary, it is outrageous, it is amazing grace that you should not treat us as our sins deserve but according to your love. And we feel, Lord, every time we take communion that somehow something comes alive in us that was dead before. Some coldness is warmed up, Lord, as the work of your Spirit applies the work of Christ to us. We want to throb with life, Lord. We want to be energized with the life of God. We want to be full of joy, Father. Oh, not that all our circumstances are fine. That would be a bonus, but it doesn't matter, Lord. We want the joy of the Lord to be our strength. So, Father, as we come to eat this bread and to take this cup, perhaps to share with one another, to, to serve one another, let us do so, Lord, conscious that we owe it all to you. We do so in grateful thanks for what you have done for us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. No one's going to play any music. No one's going to do anything when you're ready. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen.